Hey, Icon, it is good to be with you this Sunday. I hope that you had a really joyful and restful Memorial Day weekend. And today uh, is our first Sunday as we jump back into the book of Romans. So a couple weeks ago, we finished up our series on rest, which was really hopefully encouraging for you and you feel rested in the heart of Jesus. And then today, uh, we're picking back up in Romans. And so uh, for those of you who were with us last summer, you know that we began uh, to look at Romans last summer in a series that we called Straight No Chaser. And in that series, we looked at Romans 1 through 5 and saw how the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, really held, holds nothing back when it comes to confronting and even encouraging and uh, kind of sharpening the church in Rome. And so I want to give a little bit of context of Romans 1 through 5 uh, as we pick it back up in chapter 6. So Romans 1 through 5 uh, is almost this, 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 uh, this way in which Paul is trying to give the Christian church in Rome a sense of identity. And the reason for that is because the Christians in Rome were in a little bit of an identity crisis with one another. And so if you remember back some of the context of what was happening in Rome, uh, you had this collection and this amalgamation of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians all together in the church in Rome. And that was causing some tension and some anger and some bickering. And there are some ways in which the Jewish Christians were trying to feel as though they were superior to the Gentile Christians because they had the law or they were the Jewish people and they had the original promises. And then you had the Gentile Christians wanting to be superior over the Jewish Christians because they were like, well, we're not, we're not bound to any of that. We're actually free in Christ. And, and so Romans 1 through 5 kind of sets up the way in which Paul is trying to pull the church in Rome together to see that there in, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no option for superiority over your brother and sister. There's no option for it. And that's why we called our series Straight No Chaser, because Paul goes straight at it. He holds nothing back. He levels the playing field. And he says that everyone is an equal sinner, Everyone is equally saved by grace. And then in Romans 5, he kind of he kind of ends the whole that whole section talking about how everyone, every human being, if you remember back, is born into Adam, which means they are born into sin. And, and through sin, death came into the world. And so there's this great reign of sin and death in Adam, but you as a Christian have been brought out from under that reign into the second Adam or the new Adam, which is Jesus Christ. And if you remember back in Romans 5, he talks about all the implications of that, of this is who you are. This is who represents you now. It's not whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. It's not about your ethnicity. It's not about your background. It is about the one under whom the Christian church collectively finds their identity. And that alone is Jesus Christ. Jesus alone. And so now, when he picks it back up in chapter 6, we, the, the, the Roman Christians have an idea of who they are, of what they are in Christ. And now, what you're going to see where we're, where we're picking it back up in is Paul begins to shift away from uh, having established a foundation of who they are, now what that means for their life together. Romans 6 kind of starts off with this question of, okay, 
so what? What, what now? So we, we were all equally dead in sin and we were all equally saved by grace and all Christians now are under the head of Jesus Christ who brings new life. What? That's, that's encouraging. That's good to know. But what does that mean for life together? And so now, as we shift back into Romans, we're going to be looking in this series through the summer at Romans 6 through 9. And what we're going to be doing is looking at how who, how who you are in Jesus Christ utterly changes what you do, what you think, how you view the world. And specifically, we're going to be talking about the idea of release or, or freedom or deliverance. We want to look at Romans 6 through 9 and see the ways in which the gospel of Jesus Christ having our identity firmly rooted in Jesus, now gives us the opportunity for release, for freedom from areas where we tend to get stuck, even as mature Christians, that we all get stuck in some area of life. And sure, we have seasons where we feel like we're, man, we, we are running a forward in the Christian life. We feel like the momentum is headed towards Jesus and we're growing all the more. But if any of us have any level of honesty, we know that there are areas in our life that we tend to get stuck in, that we can't get out from under. And I, our hope is that this series of Romans 6 through 9, talking about release, that the Spirit of God would give you relief and freedom and deliverance from some of these things. Because it's possible. Because it's available to you as a Christian. That's what kind of the burden of this whole series throughout the summer is going to be, is that these things, this release from whatever we're talking about in week to week, that's available to you in Jesus precisely because of who Jesus is and who you are in him. And so that, that's what we're going to be looking at. That's where we're picking up in the book of Romans. And so today we are going to look at Romans 6, 1 through 14. Romans 6, 1 through 14. And specifically, kind of today's category of release is a, is a really big one. <laughs> We're going to look at how in Christ we are released from sin. Released from sin. And I want to start off looking at this chapter, these verses, with a little bit of a personal story. Um, and so, years and years ago, I, I found myself in that place that I described of just feeling stuck. Feeling like, you know, I, I was a Christian, I'd been a Christian for a couple years at that point, and but there was sin in my life that I just could not seem to get out from under. I continually felt like it was just beating me and whipping me. And I, I, I didn't understand why. I couldn't really get myself out of it. And, and in that season, I had a few mentors who uh, most of them were incredibly helpful and encouraging. And I even credit so much of the growth in my life back to those solid men. But there was, there was one man... And it was really confusing because he was really encouraging most of the time and really helpful most of the time. But there was, there was one conversation that I had with him in this season where I just went to him and I'd come off just a like a, a brutal month of failure, feeling like an utter failure in the Christian life, 
feeling ashamed, feeling confused, struggling with the assurance of salvation. Am I a Christian? I was, I was coming to him in a very lowly and beaten down space. And I, I went to him to have some wisdom, to have some encouragement, to see some ways in which I might get some help. And this was his response to me. After me coming to him for help, he just said this. Have you ever tried just not doing that? Have you ever tried just stopping? And I was, I didn't show it in the moment, but I was furious. I was furious and confused because I had said, did I really give this man any evidence that I wasn't serious about putting sin to death in my life? I was there weeping, falling apart before him with conviction of sin and a desire to grow. And his solution, his advice to me was, have you ever considered just stopping, just not doing that anymore? I was offended. I was angry because I had, of course I had, I had tried everything I could. So that type of wisdom totally threw me off, made me angry. But, but, but what he said there, I think really helps sum up some of what many of us believe about the Christian life, that, that we almost view the Christian life as, you know, believe, be baptized, behave, believe in Christ. Be baptized, show that you're a Christian, and now behave. Just go live like a Christian. And we simplify it down to, to those categories. And because of that, we find ourselves in a lot of times struggles with sin that can be really confusing because although we want to, quote unquote, behave, we don't know how to. We feel like we're, we're, we're hitting a wall. And what I want to say today as we, as we look at this text, kind of the, the big idea of my sermon today is that there is a categorical difference between manufacturing the Christian life and manifesting the life of Christ. I want to say that again. There is a massive difference between you manufacturing the Christian life and you manifesting the life of Christ. When you are manufacturing the Christian life, you're doing everything you can. You are, you are doing everything you can to get free from this and to, to do this, to no longer do this. But you find yourself in so many ways just, just exhausted. You feel tapped out because you're, you're working out of your own strength. That is different than manifesting the life of Christ. That in our desire to be released from sin, there is a life in Jesus that's available to us. And it's that life that is going to get us free from sin. That will begin to get us out from under where we feel stuck. So that's what I want to look at today. And in order to do that, looking at Romans 6, I want to, I want to talk about three truths that Paul kind of lays out in verses 1 through 14. And these truths kind of kind of build on one another. And just a quick note, the first two are very discouraging, but the third one saves us all, okay? But I, I want to look at three truths and consider three truths together 
in order that we can have a sense of release from sin in a way that doesn't cause us to be exhausted because we're trying to do the thing ourselves. In a way that doesn't lead to moralism, but actually leads to transformation. Okay? So Romans 6, we're going to look at verses 1 through 14. And the first truth that I want us to see is this. Everyone is a servant to something. Everyone is a servant to something. When you look at this text, Paul uses the language of servant or slave or master. And he doesn't reserve that language for the category of sin. Paul, as he begins to talk about freedom from sin, first what he wants you to see is that no one is ever truly free. No matter what. No matter what category you feel like you are enslaved to, whether it is to sin or, as Paul says here, slaves to righteousness, you are never truly autonomous. You are never out from under the influence of some power or some reality in your life. And this is due to our nature as creatures. As much as this culture wants to convince you and to convince me otherwise, you are not free. You are not your own. You are not an autonomous being who can walk around this world without any reference or service to some greater reality or power. There's only one being in existence who actually has autonomy who actually lives life, who is alive without reference to someone outside of him. And that is God alone. But we as creatures, we are always living our lives in reference to something else. We are always under something, giving our allegiance, our service, and even our worship to something outside of us. Paul says that here in the text when he talks about being no longer slaves to sin. For the death Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That idea of presenting ourselves, that's, that's coming under something in service to it. And Paul says, don't present yourselves as members to sin. Present yourselves, even as Christians, present yourselves as uh, your members as in service to righteousness, in service to God. It's important for us to grasp, because when we think about being free from sin, I think sometimes we can fall into the error of thinking that once I'm free from sin, I'm just like free. There's, there's, no, there's no category over me. There's no, there's no reality over me in which I need to uh, live in reference to. But Paul here says, even when you are free from sin, which we'll get into that a little bit later, even when you are free from sin, you are a slave to righteousness. 
And Justin next week is going to look at, look through and show how that's a, that's a good thing and how that brings life. But it's important for us to see there is no one who is free, who is autonomous, who doesn't live in reference to something else. Giving our allegiance, our service, and even our worship to something. The, the New York Times columnist and best-selling author David Brooks uh, he gave a commencement address at Kenyon College years ago. Uh, now, mind you, David Brooks is not a Christian, but he points out something in that commencement address that is some solid truth. And he, he says this, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. David Brooks hits on the reality that Paul is trying to show here. You are a servant to something. But the only two categories, although David Brooks has a few categories here, the only two categories Paul gives is either you are a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Again, that's why he uses the language of present yourself, present your members not to sin but to righteousness. All of us live in reference to something. That's what Jesus says in John 8 when he says that, uh, in 8.31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, and you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Even that language there of free indeed in the son, it still says that he's under the house. (laughs) He's under the house. He's under the, the, the rule of the house. All of us are in subject to something. It's an important truth for us to gather here as we're kind of building what Paul is saying in this text. So, All of us are a servant to something. But truth number two is that all of us, when born, we are slaves to sin. We are slaves to sin. Paul also points out here that sin is a power apart from Christ. That all people are in subjection to apart from Jesus Christ. That Paul uses some language here that identifies sin not just as instances of of what you practice in your life, of, of things that you do or even things that you don't do, as true as that is, but something that we miss in the New Testament that we don't really usually have categories for it in our Western, Western world is that sin is also presented as a power. 
as an agent in the world that is exercising some sort of rule or reign. Sin is not the only, only the things that you do, but it is a power, or if I can say it this way, a force at work in the world, bringing God's image bearers under its own reign and power. That's why Paul uses the language of sin's reign here. Or earlier in chapter 5, he talks about how sin reigned through death. Sin is not only the things you do, but also it's a, it's a thing, it's a spiritual power called sin that is reigning over sinful human beings. What this, what this means is that apart from Christ, you have no option other than being subject to sin. So we are, you know, like I said, we are servants to something. And when we are born into this world, we are born under the reign of this power called sin. We are born in subjection to it. We don't get a choice. Because our, as was explored early in Romans 5, our line carries the contagion of sin with it. So every human being born into this world comes into this world under the reign of sin. So we are servants to something and naturally servants to sin. That's how these two connect. Slaves to sin. It's not just a thing that you do, but a power that exercises control over you. As Fleming Rutledge says, sin is a malign force under which the unaided human being has no control. Or as Philip Ziegler says, to be lorded over by sin, capital S, is to have been engaged to be its representative, its member, part, and tool. In our very existence, we are exponents of a power which transforms the cosmos into chaos. Our lives actually making a case for the power that possesses us and in whose service we are enrolled. What he's saying there is, don't you, especially there at the end, it's make, our, our lives together make a case that we are in subject to some dark reality in this world. And that, my friends, you know, that's why moralism doesn't work. That's why the advice that my mentor had given me then did not work. Because sin is not just a thing you do, it's a power at work in the world, reigning in the world. That's why moralism doesn't work. Not only because you've already sinned and can't atone or pay for your own sins, but because without Jesus as Savior, which we'll get into in a moment, you have no option other than to sin. Apart from Jesus, you have no other option other than to be subject to the power of sin in the world. Can you do wonderful deeds for the world? Without a doubt. But all of it, the trajectory of your life or the, the flavor of your life is always under subjection to the power of sin. To the reign of sin. And doesn't that, doesn't that make sense? Doesn't that make sense of the world around us? When you look at our world, the outrageous acts of injustice and evil, of abuse, of manipulation, 
When you look at our world that is infected with ungodly competition, with greed and gluttony for more at the expense of the lowly, do you really look at all of that and just think, oh, that's just the result of a bunch of human beings sinning? It's just the collective result of the fact that we have, what, six billion people in the world. Everyone's kind of sinning at the same time, so it creates some really bad things. Of course, that's true. But there's something darker behind it. There's something much darker and powerful than just the fact that everyone seems to be sinning at the same time, so some bad things come up. No, there is a power at work that is subjecting our world to chaos and destruction. Sin is not just the things you do. So when we say released from sin, we're not even just talking about you stop doing that. We're talking about release from a power in which, uh, under which we are subjected to naturally. That has exercised a reign over the world since Adam first sinned. That's truth number two. So to review, truth number one, we are all in service to something. We, are all, we all have some great master that is determining our lives, whether that is sin or God. And we, truth number two, are natural servants to sin. That we are born into this world under the reign and the power of sin. Now, truth number three, and this is where the glorious truth of Romans 6 comes out, is that you have been freed in Christ. You have been freed in Christ. You, you no longer are under the power of sin. You are no longer under the reign of sin in Jesus. And Paul gives here some very specific truths as to why. Listen to what he says in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Look down at verse 10. For the death that Jesus died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That the Christian now actually has freedom from sin. And the, the freedom that the Christian have, the Christian has is from this reality of being in Jesus Christ. Being, being in him, of, of now being what's called united with Christ. That there, there is a doctrine in the Christian faith that, that goes above and beyond the, the, the ways that we tend to think about salvation. You see, we, we tend to think about Jesus and our connection with him as almost in economic terms. 
that Jesus, you know, did something and now he gives it to us and, and that thing is salvation and it's something that now we can hold on to, something that we have. But the New Testament, and especially Paul, lays out some, a much more rich and deep view of salvation. And that is this idea of union with Christ. Of union with Christ. Paul uses that term in Christ nearly 100 times in the New Testament. And what this truth says, what this doctrine is that Paul is drawing from here is this. Everything true about Jesus, everything he has is now yours through union with him by faith. I want to say that again. Everything true about Jesus Everything he has, everything he's done is now yours. You are now included into that through union with him, being one with him by faith. So when you trust in Jesus, you, you don't just get an object called salvation, but you actually get union with the person who has won salvation. That's, that's what Paul lays out here as the solution to being free from sin. Is that Jesus died a death that took away the power, the reign of sin. He died that. He, he, he did that. And he was raised from the grave by the glory of the Father and now lives life to God, never to die again, never to be subject to any temptation towards sin or any influence of sin. That's who Jesus is, and you are in him. That's Paul's conclusion. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the solution. That's the way of release. That's how it happens. That's how freedom comes is through union with the victorious Jesus Christ. It's not through you trying harder. It's not through you considering the question of my mentor, have you ever just tried stopping? Release from sin and coming under the service into the righteousness of God, presenting our members to God, that happens Because you are united to Jesus Christ and the reigning power of sin cannot have its effect in you any longer. Because it cannot have its effect over the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you manifest the life of Christ. That's how you refuse to manufacture the Christian life. That's how I started off this sermon. If you want to live free from sin, this big category of sin, not just things you do, but the power of it, what you do is you refuse to manufacture the Christian life. You take this reality of union with Jesus and you, you, you if I can say it this way, you appropriate it into your life. You appropriate that truth into your life that you are no longer, though tempted by sin, though influenced by sin, of course, you are no longer subject to its reign. That the truth of who you are to the core, 
what you are, who you are in Jesus Christ, is now utterly and categorically different, which means that sin cannot reign over you. If you are united to Jesus, now dead to sin and alive to God, then that means when you obey God and refuse sin, you are most like yourself. Does that make sense? If you are united to Jesus, this is the way to manifest the life of Christ, is you appropriate it to yourself and you see that Jesus' victory is yours, that the most true thing about you is all of who Jesus Christ is. Which means that when you obey God and you refuse sin, you are most like yourself. How contrary is that to how our culture views Christian obedience? Even we do. It's just people trying harder. It's just people doing things. No, the, the, the call of the New Testament, the call of Jesus to you today is to recognize who you are in him and see that what that means for your life is that obedience is the, the, the more natural thing. Though you still struggle with sin, though you still are tempted with sin, though you still fail, absolutely, the truest thing about you is now victory. <laughs> that your true identity is no longer in subject to sin, but actually alive to God. Listen to how Tim Keller says this. While sin remains in me with a lot of strength, it no longer controls my personality and life. It is still able to lead me to disobey God, but now sinful behavior goes against my deepest self-understanding. When a non-Christian sins, they are acting in accord with their identity, with who they are. Why wouldn't they sin? But when someone is united to Christ, everything changes because who they are changes. There is a new me. When a Christian sins, they are acting against their identity. Why would they sin? Therefore, if I sin, it is because I do not realize who I am. I have forgotten what has been done for me in Christ. You manifest the life of Christ. Who he is as you by faith appropriate the reality of his victory of all that he's made you to be by his work alone you appropriate that into your life and you see that you're no longer in subject to the reign of sin in fact the true thing about you is that you're released from it so that means when you when you act in obedience to god when you submit yourself to him like jesus always did that means it's, that's never going against the grain of your deepest self. The true you as a Christian is found in Jesus Christ. In what he's done and what he's called you to do. Friends, that's how we get free from sin. We don't try harder. We, we see better. We see better the reality of who Jesus is and how by faith I'm united to him. So everything true about him is now true of me. And now I appropriate that truth into my life. I live as who I truly am in Jesus Christ. That's why this isn't moralism. 
Because it's not me trying harder, it's just me seeing better. It's just me manifesting the life of Christ that's already there. So friends, I, I would encourage you this week, examine where are you manufacturing the Christian life? Where are you just trying harder to, to do whatever and to stop doing this? And how has that left you exhausted? And then consider what it would look like to manifest the life of Christ. To simply receive all of who He is and all of who He's made you to be. The freedom from the reign of sin and now the, the service to righteousness. What it would look like for you to appropriate that into your life. Manifesting the life of Christ in release. Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son, Jesus, who has given us freedom from sin. That yes, all of us live in subject to something, but you, by your mercy, have made us subject to righteousness now because of Jesus. And that's the way of life. That's the way of freedom. That's the way of joy. Our old life, being subject to the reign of sin, was full of despair and anger and disappointment and disillusionment chaos, God, because we were under the service, we were under the agent of chaos in sin. But you, by your mercy, sent Jesus into the world to free us, that, that Jesus would put sin in the grave, and by faith we would trust in him and have that same reality applied to our lives. Father, would your spirit help us to appropriate that into our life as we manifest who Jesus already is into our real life this week. We love you, Lord, and we entrust ourselves to you, our obedience to you, everything, Father. Let us be in service to you, dead to sin, and alive to you, God, in Christ. It's in his mighty name that I ask these things. Amen.